Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by the team from uh, Melio Payments, Omer Baki and Or Cohen. Hey, guys. Hi, I am. Hey. Great to be here. Hey. Yeah, so uh, Omer, I read a blog post of yours uh, on, the, I think it was on Medium, right? Uh, that way you talked about how you guys yeah. build this uh, payment processing system using serverless. Uh, and I'm just quite interested to see, you know, some of the things you guys were able to do really quickly and quite impressive work, to be honest. Um, so I guess maybe let's start by just uh, introducing yourselves, uh, who you are, um, who is Melio, and uh, what is your role inside uh, Melio? Uh, my name is Omel, and um, I lead the infrastructure teams in Melio, the R&D. Um, I'm, uh, my name is Or. Uh, I am a principal engineer at Melio. Uh, it doesn't mean much outside of Melio. Uh, I was one of the first uh, employees in the company. Uh, basically, what the title said means is that today I have the privilege of taking part in the interesting projects uh, in the <laughs> company. And the first uh, few stages of the, like the first iteration of like the infrastructure of Melio, I was really part of building it. Okay, so I guess maybe tell us a little bit about uh, who is uh, Milio and uh, what is your business because you are in the payment processing banking area. Tell us a little bit more about uh, no, what do you guys do? So Milio in general is a, a B2B payment company existing to solve the, and digitize the, the payment flow between businesses that is currently processing around $10 trillion in checks. So it's a big market, and uh, even as we grow and the uh, exponential uh, growth in Milio in terms of the payment volume is is impressive and uh, was one of the challenges that uh, that drove us to do this refactoring and improving our system in order to be able to to process an increasing amount of payment volume over time. I guess uh, being in the payment processing sector uh, that comes with lots of uh, interesting regulatory requirements so let's uh, get into that in, in a minute um, but uh, you talk about the uh, you know, 10 trillion dollars worth of uh, you know, checks they have to process every year so i guess uh, how long have you guys been around you know, as the whole company yeah so milio first like production launch was january 19 uh, we started out, as Omar said, the first uh, where the idea was born is from exactly like small business payments in the U.S. They make a lot of their payments with checks. It's manually made. They write them. They send them out. And then so we started out by allowing a payor, a business, to pay their vendors with essentially any payment method that they want to use. They can use a bank transfer, they can use a credit card, they can use their debit card, and the vendor will receive the payment the same way that they've received until then. So they, if they received it by checks, we convert the uh, bank transfer to a check. If they received it by a uh, bank transfer, we can convert the credit card payment again to a bank transfer. So that's what we started out in January 19. Essentially, the product is basically the same. So if you kind of strip out all of the marketing, like the marketing talk and what we uh, publish outside, essentially, technically, what we have is we have a bank account in the middle. We pull funds to this bank account from our customers, our uh, businesses that are registered to Milio. 
And then we send out money from that bank account to their vendors. So we start with this and then we added, with this function, functionality, we added the ability to receive payments. A few months later, we added that you can register to receive payments. Uh, and then we partnered with QuickBooks. Today, if you log into QuickBooks, uh, you can pay your bills through QuickBooks which essentially launches a Melio experience and allows you to do the payment flow with all of Melio features. There has been a lot of features added since then. There's a, a, like a workflow that you can approve payments. We added more payment methods, we added virtual cards, and you can now pay payments outside of the US. But essentially, Melio is still Melio. You do business payments and, um, and yeah, so it's, it's very exciting. It's been a very exciting time. Just in the past year and a half, there's been a really a potential, there's been a significant growth in around 3,000% in the volume that Melio processes due to the ability to, to partner with different companies, different companies that, that used our payment platform as their payment services to service their businesses. Okay. And I guess, uh, do you mainly serve uh, customers in, the, in Israel or do you, I guess it sounds like you also uh, look after customers in the US as well? Because he talked about uh, some of the payment networks in the US, like ACH and things like that. Um, I guess in that case, that puts you guys in a lot of the different uh, financial regulators' uh, jurisdictions. Uh, in that case, how does that impact you guys in terms of the, the work you are doing day-to-day -day in terms of the technology selection that you have to make? Now, it sounds like you, know, you guys started with AWS from the start. Were you always doing serverless or did you start with uh, EC2 and Kubernetes? Yeah, so just to kind of frame, we only do operate on United States. This is where the big market is. This is where the problem of checks actually is a big problem. Like this is where we started. Uh, outside the US, if you go to uh, European countries or uh, Eastern, uh, Eastern countries like Singapore, then checks are really non-existent. Uh, it's basically, it's very rare to see a check. It's just the US... Um, so, so that's where we started. What we did, essentially, uh, in my background, I was a DevOps consultant. I was doing a backend and I was doing frontend. I was doing all sorts of things. And then when I joined Milio, I, I had a talk with the CTO, Ilan, and we sat together and I kind of told just my, my aspiration to, uh, to not configure an NTP service Anytime, any, any place, I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to configure services and hosts and in EC2, EC2 instance and have configuration management and all of this complexity. With that mindset of not configuring uh, anything, we, I, I've kind of Lambda or serverless essentially was kind of like the natural uh, solution for this, uh, for this mindset. We wanted, sometimes Omer uh, laughs when I said this, but I normally don't call this serverless. To me, it's, it's more sitting in the area of like management-less. The, the idea of us using serverless is just to manage as little as possible by ourselves and focus on the business logic, the minimal implementation that we need around to make things work. And just Lambda, in AWS specifically, Lambda is a perfect solution for this. So our first implementations were actually around Lambda. We started out with Lambda, like the first backend of our front-end system was running on AWS's uh, serverless. Later, actually, that was around, that was the end of like 2018. 
we had some issues with cold starts back then. There was there was no uh, still like provision concurrency and similar features. So in, in keeping with the mindset of going serverless, we kind of dropped down a level and used Fargate. So essentially our architecture, what it looks like is that we have a lot of uh, Lambda-based services and we have a few, we have a, a layer that is based on Fargate, which supports uh, a lot of different tasks. So you can say that from day one, we had the essentially the benefit and privilege of actually using serverless and experimenting and actually building a production environment around that. Okay, and I guess in this case, uh, nowadays, uh, you guys are using both Fargate and you're using Lambda. So when someone is working on a new workload, uh, what are some of the decision points that you use to say, okay, that workload should run on Fargate and uh, or that workload should run on Lambda? I could say that specifically in my previous company, I, I, we worked with Kubernetes and it required a very strong team of DevOps and it created a dependency on that team. So the, avail the availability of that team was sort of orchestrating the, the speed or the velocity of our, of our ability to, to develop. So I guess it, now that we use serverless mainly, there were a few advantages, but deciding on what should be the workload really depends on the task. I think or we'll uh, maybe uh, want to elaborate it uh, more later uh, on this, uh, specifically on uh, maybe the front-end side, but on the payment platform side, it's completely serverless. I mean, we only use Lambdas because we found an amazing advantage of that platform, the infrastructure, because first of all, when you work with payment processing specifically, there are specific time windows that processing is taking place. The system doesn't have to be up, be loaded all the time. It doesn't have to be servers that run continuously. It, it works in, uh, in sliding windows or in windows of burst operations or burst uh, payments that need to be processed. So, for example, at a specific time, there are a few thousand payments that are processed and then the payment system can just shut down completely. So this was one of the advantages that we saw. And in addition, specifically, it was easier to take part of the system. And if it was a bit monolithic, it was easier to take part of the money flow and export it into new services and, and change the configuration accordingly. It was also possible with that, with that infrastructure. But uh, specifically, what do you want to talk about the uh, target? Yeah, so I can add to that. There's like a well, there's like a policy that the first thing you try to do is you try to use Lambda. This is because it provides all of the benefits, and we also use uh, Lumigo for tracing, so we kind of have everything out of the box. We have perfect visibility into what's going on, uh, and if that doesn't work, then we kind of adjust to make the solution work. So I have a few examples for that. Uh, let's take WebSockets, for example. Lambda and WebSockets, it's, it's, not, like an, it's not a natural uh, solution for that. I mean, you can make it work, it, and it works, and we have a few experiments with that. It's just that sometimes engineers are not used to the idea, and it seems it's, it looks a bit clunky to making it work um, like naturally as you would expect a WebSocket to work. With if we would go to the uh, to the Fargate route and then we have a load balancer connected to the, these instances, these servers essentially, then it seems much more natural and works much more naturally. And you write your code as you would expect to write it. For example, with WebSockets, if we want to take down, for example, the latency to the bare minimum to have almost no overhead because 
it matters at certain points, then some, then yeah, maybe we would also do Fargate for that. But that sometimes I kind of insist that let's try to make Lambda more optimized because of all the, the other benefits. So just let's actually try to use the overhead to our advantage instead of trying to uh, avoid it. As an example, maybe we can say, so just as an example, maybe if, if we encounter the, the 15 minutes timeout that Lambda has, that it might mean that it's not that it's, it's the wrong tool, but we might need to reconsider changing our architecture or redesign it in a way that it works, maybe break down the task into smaller tasks. And, in, and, and sometimes it was really beneficial because it speed up the whole system and even reduce the cost in a way. So it, it was nice to have those limitations to reconsider if we had, for example, a server that is up and running, we might leave it as is. But this limitation actually was beneficial and helped us rethink our design. Yeah, this is a very good point. I, I, was, I had another example of uh, like MapReduce jobs running on Spark or, or something similar which is not, again, not natural to have on Lambda. But yeah, but essentially is we try to go all the way. Uh, and if that doesn't work to the, the, the solution that we need, we don't do it. Uh, so to Omer's point about limitations, one of the things that you encounter with engineers that are onboarding in the company and then they start using Lambda or serverless and they come from like the Kubernetes world or, or just, you know, any server world is around limitations like you we have the time limit limit we have the time limitation the timeout lambda timeout we have the memory limitation we have and we have a bunch more like there's only single execution isolate sorry isolated execution uh, and similar stuff these limitations are actually or for example sorry i forgot uh, provisioned um the concurrency account concurrency of how many lambdas you can run so at first glance like these limitations are somewhat like, hey, I now have a limitation that I should consider all the time when I'm writing the code. Like I have a time frame which I can work in and if I and I can't cross that time frame or I have a concurrency limit in my entire account and I need to consider that concurrency limit or I need to reserve some of that or I need to, for example, if we have a Lambda that listens on an SQS, If the SQS kind of explodes for a few minutes, suddenly this Lambda can catch the entire concurrency limit of the entire account, which could be problematic if you're running other workloads. So you should be aware of all of these parameters coming into play. But if you flip the coin, uh, these limitations are actually kind of liberating. This sounds weird when I say this, even to me now. <laughs> but uh, but consider you have a server that you're running a workload on, okay? And you have a bunch of threads in a JVM or you have a node process or a bunch of them that are running on the server and it starts getting requests upon requests upon requests and the request load starts to go up. Uh, where is the limit? Like, how do you know if the limit is 10,000 requests concurrent or 5,000 or uh, even 100? You can't know exactly where the limit is So you initially, you kind of eyeball it and then you say, okay, it should be around 5,000. And then you hit 2,000 and everything breaks. So you adjust for this parameter. And then, and, and then you reach more and more limitations, context switching. I sometimes hit even a Mac address caching limitation in the kernel. Uh, you hit all these limitations without even knowing that they exist once you start. 
when you have predefined limitations like the time uh like the memory like all of these then you actually have a very well formed boundaries that you can work in and you can expect uh once production is actually running hot so so instead of being uh, limiting actually these limitations actually provide a very a very defi- defined frame to work in yeah, I agree. And definitely, the, I think what you mentioned, Omar, there that uh, you have to think about these limits, and oftentimes they help you, they help lead you to better design, which is going to make your system better in the long run, as opposed to just assume that you have infinite amount of resources, you can run your code for as long as possible until such a time that you, you know your code runs for an entire weekend, and no one's really you know think twice about oh maybe it shouldn't take that long to run this simple thing, right? Um, I've, you know, I've worked in banks in the past where we got these batch jobs that just you know, run for as long as it needs to uh, until one time it just uh, it took so long that uh, over the weekend you couldn't finish and then come Monday people start going to go you know, go back to work and start using the system and they can't because uh, this thing is still running. Uh, things like that that you just don't really think about because you know there's no constraint. You can just kind of just do whatever you uh, you do rather than having some constraints that force you to be creative and think really think about the problems and you know what are some of the more efficient ways of solving this problem until you know until you can't do anything. You no, know, these limits are there, and what you need to do does have to go over these limits. In which case, uh, okay, maybe like you said, lambda is not a good fit because we do have a best job. It's going to take more than 15 minutes and there's no way for us to uh, break it into smaller tasks that we can uh, you know, run in sequence instead. So maybe at that point you bring in Fargate, but at least it's, um, it's a decision that you've thought about and you've considered a limit yeah. and then you reach the point where, okay, let's do something else as opposed to just, yeah, let's just uh, throw a box and let it run for as long as you can. Uh, and no one really thinks about, uh, okay, is this the best way to do this thing? Exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. Also, also, the cost uh, can be an interesting parameter. In a way, the cost is like a monitoring tool that you can use in order to uh, understand if you're using it, uh, you're using this infrastructure in the best way. Maybe a task that takes a long time but doesn't require a lot of memory should be splitted from the other tasks that the short tasks that require that memory, that memory consumption or whatever. So in that in that sense it was easy because you you can just look at the code and take part of the logic and just extract it into a different lambda and maybe connect it do the orchestration yourself by uh, placing an sqs between them or w- whatever the design requires but also the next evolution of it is relatively easy because if you want to move to uh, orchestration by step functions you already have everything set up and you just need to to change the orchestrator to an external an external tool. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the step functions because that's one of the things that I was going to uh, ask you as well. Uh, obviously, you know, payment processing, there's lots of different steps that you have to go through. There are lots of uh, uh, different third-party services you've got to talk to. You know, you've got to, like you said, to credit money into your account first and then take it out and pay to someone else's account. Um, so... How are you guys using step functions? Is it mostly to drive your batch processing uh, to process these uh, checks, or do you use them more widely for lots of different things? Well, uh, I guess one of the issues that we encounter is really how to define what is the t- what is the state machine, where does it start, and where where does it end, and where is, is the new state machine begins. So 
this is also I see it as a as a as a transition as an ongoing transition. For example, if we take a long task, for example, if I look at a payment, there's the the part of the processing on our side, and there's the part where the bank, for example, notifies you back the reports of what was transferred yesterday or st- stuff like that. So you could decide that the whole state of a payment, is the is the whole uh, flow from from sending it from our bank to the uh, from the vendor bank or whatever and also getting back the report and this will all be one state or maybe split them and it, in in a way it's easier to split them at first because we can for example have the entire flow self orchestrated by us by just placing sqs uh, sns whatever between them and then maybe take a few lambdas a part of this flow and externalize it into step function and then decide later if this specific step function should be longer should include another section or part of part of that so initially it's easier to just decide of one of the flows that is maybe the most critical to change and first change it and then consider the next steps so one of the advantages is the ability to to move in in small steps and and it doesn't have to be Like a huge refactor of the code and you know and a, and a long rollout and stuff like that, you can really do minor changes each time and move forward all the time so you mentioned that uh, you're gonna you know at some point you're gonna move uh, some of this uh, orchestration logic out of lambda functions and into step functions uh, so in that case, uh, why not start with step functions to begin with? When we first started the payments processor, the first iteration of payments processor was kind of like a monolithic uh, uh, lambda. It's kind of a lamb- one lambda that contained everything and ran all the payments. And then Omer's team took it and kind of split it into multiple lambdas that all do one job or, or they kind of stream from one queue to another. So when we started, we saw the complexity of kind of having code that runs everything and we wanted something better in the form of step function, in the form of a workflow. managed workflow the problem that we had a problem that we faced is actually similar to what we mentioned earlier with limitations is that when you first start when you start to write your you write to this when you start to describe your program as a workflow uh, you suddenly realize how many things you're not handling when you're just writing code you suddenly realize that you have a bunch of edge cases that you When you're just describing a code, when you're just writing code, you say, "Okay, this is gonna bork at some point and it's gonna throw an exception, and someone's gonna catch it, log it, and then we'll monitor uh, with a workflow and specifically with step functions, if some something fails, you must handle it specifically. You must be prepared for almost any error so that the workflow would be either complete or, It would be recoverable from different points in the in the flow itself so this was I can share like this was the first thing that kept us from using step functions initially we we just didn't have enough resources to invest and we to be honest we didn't know enough about the payment processing that we're gonna face with to start with a workflow that is kind of well defined our process itself for payments processing wasn't well defined so we couldn't define it as a workflow yet today it's much more rich like it's it's richer and and it's much it's much better defined but that was initially uh, maybe Omar can continue from there about what's happening now yeah I guess uh, it's, it's a matter of of priority in a way but it's like the 
the decision whether to do one giant leap or take three small steps. And I think our approach was to take those uh, smaller steps and which, by the way, serverless really enables you to do it uh, more easily. But uh, but the, one of the reasons was that we had to uh, keep up with the business. Because there was such a huge growth in such a short time, the highest priority was to, you know, that, that everything will work, you know, the money will go through, uh, rather than maybe do the, maybe read the furthest ideal uh, design. But I think the idea was that at least we're moving, we're not making one step forward, two steps back in a way. We're always moving forward. So it wasn't contradicting the approach to take the small steps. Because anyway, we had to first split it in order to move to step functions. So the evolution was a bit natural. I mean, it was making sense anyway to do this in small steps. And it was also enable us to test it and make sure that the implementation and the design is correct. Okay, makes sense. And uh, earlier on, you mentioned uh, something that uh, from your previous jobs where you had uh, you know, Kubernetes and uh, the Kubernetes team or the DevOps team became a bottleneck uh, for the whole company because everyone had to go through them. Uh, and one of the benefits of serverless and or not using Kubernetes is that uh, each team can then just move the, uh, at their own speed. Um, so how do you, in that case, uh, as a company, make, still make sure that there's some consensus or standards in terms of how everyone is building the application? So different teams are all following best practices or conventions that you agreed on as a company? So it's a very good question because it's a really tough problem to get everyone uh, around the same ideas. So... Actually, what happened was, is that we started with some kind of standardized service structure. Then as the company evolved and, and more and more people joined, it became apparent that it doesn't, it doesn't hold. Like we can't have a single structure for all services and everyone would work around that. Uh, we needed to give some freedom to back to the engineers to decide how their service is going to look like, what is the structure what is the structure of the of their service or lambdas or fargate would be so the standard is somewhere if if i can describe it it's like it would be like every team is like their own island and the infrastructure uh, like the standardization lives in the international waters so essentially every team with the mindset of using lambda and and having everything kind of going you know sqs if you need a queue and dynamodb if you need some kind of keys key value storage like we have a consensus around ideas or, or stuff that we want to do but when you step outside of the service outside of the team's responsibility into those like international waters then things should be speaking the same language so for example if I want to share my service with others, I must use API Gateway with AWS IAM authentication. That's that's the standard way. If you want to go another route because you need to for different reasons, then it's okay. But you need to you need a very good uh, reason for that. If I want to share uh, an event with a different team in the company, then I need to use some kind of event bus that we have. It's a standard structure like SNS to SQS subscriptions. It's nothing special. And all of these, like if I want to log stuff, I need to send them to CloudWatch logs, whether I'm using Fargate or I'm using Lambda. Lambda is natural because that's where it goes. Uh, but with Fargate, you can do a lot of things. So we kind of matched everything to go to the same location. 
essentially like everything that happens outside the effects that your service has on the system, they need to be, this is where the standard lives. We have a few standards for the company itself. Like we use almost the same language everywhere. We use uh, Node.js, uh, TypeScript, and a bunch of these, but this is more to get like people well-oriented with what other teams are writing and not necessarily to have the same structure. I hope that explains like where we see how the standard lives. I think uh, I can add to that, and I mentioned it in my blog post, that, and I also saw this in a way being asked by colleagues, by friends from previous previous jobs. I think it was fair to ask. Sometimes you usually ask, should I use serverless? And it's never the question, should I use Kubernetes? I mean, at least fair to ask those same questions. Because, and if I ask this myself, honestly, I would say if it does currently no limitation. So, you know, sometimes I, I think it's funny that the problem with serverless is that it's too easy. You know, it's, and engineers are getting bored and they want Kubernetes because it's more complicated. But, but really, if you, if you want to move fast and it's easier, and so it makes sense. So if it makes sense, at least this should be the dynamic of the culture. I mean, to have that debate and decide logically what makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I forgot who always said that well, nobody gets fired for using Kubernetes, but if you want to use something yeah, static yeah, like sure. Lambda, uh, well, you're putting yourself uh, on the hook. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree in terms of you no, know, the fact that Lambda is just so easy, so boring. All you do is just, uh, oh, I need API. Okay, there you go. Push, push, got something done. Uh, there's no engineering challenge per se. There's no, no tinkering. There's no, you don't get the same satisfaction at the end where, okay, I built this thing that's complicated. But uh, no, I feel really good because uh, obviously I'm quite smart to be able to figure this out. Uh, even if uh, what you've got is you know, Frankenstein house of cards that's just going to fall apart uh, yeah, if someone just looks at it wrong. But, but that's it. You do get a lot of, I guess, excitement and enjoyment from tinkering in the same way that you know, people like working on their cars. Uh, they're not going to build you know, as good a car as, say, uh, Tesla or any other car manufacturer. But you know, the thing that you're building out, even if it's not as good as uh, the real people would do, uh, but it's, it's good, right? It's, if it feels good, that you've done something you've been tinkering with it yeah. uh, but obviously as a company you probably don't want that you want people just do their job get the right outcome for the company <laughs> sometimes i joke about it that we have the best devops team in the world which is aws we have aws in our service they are investing so much resources in it and you know with provision concurrency which solves a lot of issues with uh, every time every reinvent conference you see how much they invest in it and the way that working together with them really also makes sense and help us focus. It's not that we are missing some challenges, you know, we have enough. So we can, I can skip the having a challenge to write to log. I guess those challenges are less interesting than solving business challenges. And also with serverless, there are interesting challenges to solve as well, because many people talk about the difficulty to work in local environment. And there are amazing solutions for it. I mean, or maybe can elaborate it on one of the efforts that they're doing in building personal environments, which I never saw that working with multiple servers, I mean, with microservices, I didn't see a company that really solved this issue properly. That working locally really makes sense. So this is one of the efforts or one of the challenges that we want to invest time and resources in. Okay, so or do you want to? Um, are you okay? Are you happy to talk about uh, how you guys are doing this local development? 
yeah, yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, Omar, yeah. So actually, I, I spoken earlier about having kind of a shared structure for all services. Uh, there was a reason for that. And the reason was that I wanted to be able to run a certain service either on a local computer or on Lambda, or if we need to like drop down to Fargate and put it there. That was the initial incentive to have kind of all services look alike. And then just having code different live differently, like the code would be the different uh, part of the service. So what we did essentially is we had an AWS account. This is what we started with. We had an AWS account that was shared with all of the engineers, which was essentially a playground. Each engineer had like a local dev tools repository. And what this repository did is it configured for you a bunch of resources in the cloud, SQS, SNS, DynamoDB, a bunch more. And then it wrote a file to your computer with all of the references to everything that lives in the cloud. And then when you started services on your computer, you just cloned a repository, typed in npm start, and then this service would like automatic, automatically connect it to the cloud. Like all of the services didn't use any local implementations. We didn't use SQS for a cloud and RabbitMQ uh, when you ran it locally. We didn't use Cassandra locally or MongoDB locally. And then in the cloud, we ran DynamoDB. We actually worked locally with resources that exist in the cloud. So that was the first iteration. But then we started, it started to kind of burst at the seams because the services kind of took their own structure and every team did their own thing. So now our approach is to have a sort of like a mini Milio production environment for each engineer in their own AWS account. So essentially engineers would get their own personal accounts and then with a bunch of small conventions and a, a few short uh, scripts on your computer, what you would be able to do is you would just be able to deploy your service, deploy Milio services into your own personal account. So you could have your own version with your own branches, your own kind of experiments and things that you want to do for yourself in your personal account. And because this account lives in the cloud, uh, it has its own domain. Communication works wherever you're going to it. And if you want to work on a specific service, you can just clone the service to your own computer, start it. You would need to configure it a bit to speak. Like we have a few wrappers for that, but you start it in a specific context and essentially it's as if it's running in the cloud. So for example, if we were using SAM, uh, AWS is SAM for our services. So you could just do SAM local API, start API, and then the code that exists inside your computer, essentially uh, the runtime is speaking to the cloud resources. It gets, uh, it sends messages to SQS on the cloud. It speaks to DynamoDB, it speaks to an RES database that you have yourself in your account. And the idea there is that a lot of the work that we do because we move forward so fast, it's pretty hard to write tests for implementations that you have no idea how they're gonna look like. Like a lot of the things that we do are actually a prototype that we test out, we launch. Uh, it's a new service, it's a new feature that we have no idea how it's gonna behave. So it's very helpful to have kind of a working production environment, which is not actually production data, 
that you can just start tinker with and start services and put your own branch and move a service from here to there, change a configuration, redeploy, redeploy, do all of this rinse, repeat uh, operations and have just everything working. So this is kind of a big challenge that we try to solve. It's not 100% working yet. Like there are a few gaps here and there, but we are trying to make it work. But it's very, it's very exciting. It's very, it feels like we're kind of trailblazing a lot of what's going on in the serverless world. Yeah, I've seen this approach at quite a few companies now, and that's the approach that I've taken with my previous role at the zone as well, where developers can just uh, you know deploy to their own temporary environment if you like, uh, so that they've got a copy of their own service. But I guess uh, normally we we haven't uh, uh, we haven't just tried to copy the whole company's infrastructure because uh, that's uh, much requires a lot more coordination. So every time some other team that you don't normally have to deal with uh, updates their service, you have to have somehow get their latest version of their code into your personal environment. So we haven't gone that far. Usually it's just limited to the services that you own or maybe the adjacent services that you have to talk to, you depend on uh, either upstream or downstream. Um, but but yeah, I, I do see I do see that as, uh, becoming more of um, I guess emerging practice uh, in this space. Uh, more and more companies are kind of trying to adopt this approach so that uh, developers, like you said, can rinse and repeat against their own uh, personal environment. Uh, I think oftentimes it's not the separate account. Um, see that as well but oftentimes you see the, the same so dev account for your team but uh you can have a separate environment because like i said everyone's got their own uh subdomain uh based on the name of the you know, of the environment that you give it to, uh you know you give to your stack uh so that all kind of plays really nicely especially given that you know when you don't use it you don't pay for it you don't you know you're not talking about having all these containers running around just because you've got all these uh, spare environments that everyone have to run so with Lambda, API Gateway, DynamDB, you know, you can have as many as you want, but you know, so long no one's using them, you don't pay for these uh, uh, temporary environments. And that's, really, that's one of the really nice yeah. things you get uh, with this whole you know, serverless approach to, uh, to, to doing things as well. Usually we don't really go beyond the, the free tier account of AWS. You know, we, we don't require anything more than that. So it's easy. Exactly, and uh, and with Lambda, the free tier doesn't expire after twelve months as well. So a lot of our services, the free tier expires uh, after twelve months, but Lambda just uh, you know it's based on how many uh, invocations uh, you run. Um, so I was gonna uh, say that uh, before we re before we wrap up, I want to also just get a take of some of the challenges that you still have in your serverless environment. Uh, you talked about using Lumigo as your observability platform, and it gives you a lot of visibility. Uh, so that obviously that takes care of one big common problem people have. Um, what about any other problems that you're running into in terms of you know day to day some of the uh, recurring pain points? I could say that, uh, or maybe you can elaborate also, but uh, I could say that part of the flows that we still have is, of course, what we discussed in re regarding the part of uh, of the development process. And uh, in, in terms of a, a bit of visibility, because we have microservices, it's it's a general problem that doesn't is not caused only by serverless. But this is one of the problems. And, of course, breaking down add complexity to the entire system in terms of, for example, idempotency and stuff like that, especially in payments where you have to hardly decide where you want to do stuff at most once or at least once. And usually we take the approach at most once and we need to recover from 
you know, things that are not in our control. Sometimes maybe step functions can help resolve those issues because it's easier to retry and stuff like that. But there are no, in the end, there are no, it's not magic. I mean, there are always glitches and stuff like that beyond our control. But uh, these these are mainly the, the next cases that we need to handle. Yeah, so with uh, th- those kind of challenges, uh, like idempotency is a very interesting one because depending on what you're doing, idempotency can be either really easy or really, really complicated. Uh, and uh, in, the, yeah. in the past, I've used uh, things like a saga patterns with the step function so that uh, you capture transaction with uh, the action and the rollback. And you know, depending on which step you are, you have to roll back in the same order that you committed. But if you do that for everything, and for everything, then your entire architecture just becomes really, really complicated with lots of uh, uh, sagas in your step functions. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I totally get it. Part of our flow is to upload the file to the bank that is, you know, their SFTP, and they after they read the file, they delete it. So we we have no way to to retrace what happened. So there are sometimes stuff that we need to reconsider and validate, and yeah, yeah. I think that's just the the, the challenges of uh, of modern software development. I think uh, there's lots of different services, especially in your area, where you have to integrate with a lot of other uh, third party APIs and services, and sounds like uh, different kind of protocols. Uh, you know, REST APIs, uh, you know, FTP, FTP file systems and <laughs> and whatnot. Especially, especially with banks, which are, you know, not the most technological institutes that you can think of. And there's a famous saying in Milio that, uh, you know, building a, the, the payments platform was building a Ferrari, Ferrari over bicycle wheels. Because really the bank is, really, there are no APIs, there are no, it's really limited in, in, in many ways that you can, you know, uh, really retrace and uh, build the proper design pattern that you want. And I guess in the US, especially in the US, uh, where you've got such a fragmented uh, banking space, there are so many different local small banks, there's just lots more people that you need to integrate with in, in that case as well. Um, okay, so I think uh, we are coming up to time now. Uh, I want to thank you guys uh, very much for joining us today. Uh, before we go, is there anything else that you guys would like to share with, you, with the listeners? Uh, maybe blog posts that you want to promote or uh, YouTube videos or other things that you want to share? Maybe you got job openings as well? We're definitely hiring and we have a nice blog post uh, in Medium, a nice publication that you can visit or... Uh, yeah, uh, we have a very nice, our Milio engineering blog is just kind of started about a, two months ago, starting to kind of add posts and there are a lot of coming posts now. Uh, we have a lot of openings in the US as well. There are offices in Denver, uh, in New York, uh, and in Tel Aviv for the Israeli listeners. I forgot I had one more thing I want to say. Yeah. Uh, we are starting to release a few open source projects. So we will be actually publish them also in our Milio engineering blog. Like it will work in tandem. So expect a few surprises as well from us in the coming uh, months. Okay. I would uh, make sure that the, the links to your Medium publication is uh, in the show notes as well as the blog post that Omer wrote uh, about how you build this whole payment platform on serverless and AWS. Um, and uh, yeah, if once the, your, your you know once your open source projects are released, I'll make sure those are in the show notes as well. Uh, again, thank you guys so much for taking the time today to talk to us and uh, sharing your experience. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you. And uh, yeah, stay safe and I hope to see you guys uh, at reInvent perhaps. Yeah, thank you very thank much you. for you. inviting us. Thank you very much. Take it easy. Bye bye. Bye bye.
So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.